All right, today I'd like to welcome Dr. John Lewin. Uh, Dr. Lewin's the Division Director of Critical Care and Surgery Pharmacy at, at Johns Hopkins across town. Uh, he's uh, been a clinical professor of, at University of Maryland as well and, and started here years ago in 2002 uh, working both in the multi-trauma unit in, in uh, shock trauma, the medical ICU, and a number of, I, of uh, our ICUs in the hospital before going over to Hopkins in 2004. He's currently associate professor of Department of Anesthesia and Critical Care, uh, and uh, as well as in the Division of Neurosciences Critical Care at Johns Hopkins. He is uh, the author of, the co-senior author of a recent publication um, from the Neurocritical Care Society and uh, SECM uh, guidelines on uh, reversal of antithrombotics and intracranial hemorrhage which is uh, a 2016 publication. He's written uh, uh, book chapters on coagulopathy reversal agents for ICH and has uh, given seminars on this very topic as well uh, nationally. So, Dr. Lewin, thanks for coming back to across town and uh, it's wonderful having you. Thanks for the kind introduction, Mike. It's, um, <clears throat> It is really an honor to be back here. My two years here at uh, Shock Trauma and in the MICU were really formative. It was right out of my residency program. And um, <clears throat> I had an important lesson I learned on day one when I showed up on the trauma ICU. Um, I don't know, uh, I think Ellis Kaplan may be recently retired. I'm not sure. But the day I walked up there into the ICU, he saw me, pulled me aside. And if any of you know Ellis, you wouldn't be surprised by this. He said, he says, hey, are you my new pharmacist? And I said, yeah, my name is John. Nice to meet you. He goes, nice to meet you, too. You're dosing all my immunoglycosides, and if anyone gets renal failure, you're fired. <laughs> so I learned real quick that um, I'd be an important part of the multi-professional team, which I appreciate it, and that my team members would hold me accountable to doing good things. And so I learned that lesson on day one and so many other things here. It's really, really an honor and privilege to be back here with all of you. Uh, so I have no disclosures, and uh, just to get started, some of the objectives for the discussion today. Um, what I really want to do is spend some time going over um, what some of the recommendations are in an abbreviated form, because there's a lot in there, in the guidelines we recently put together for the Neurocritical Care Society and SCCM as it relates to reversing antithrombotics in the setting of ICH. Uh, we focused our efforts on that, um, and so to a degree, some of them might be, you might be able to extrapolate these to other bleeding conditions. Uh, but in terms of the recommendations we came up with, we were going at this of a focus of spontaneous ICH and what you should do in that type of setting. Uh, so what I'll do is just introduce in terms of some initial clinical re relevance and um, uh, as it relates to why this is important, talk about our guideline methodology, and then I want to get right into it and talk about the antithrombotics themselves, how they work, work, how you might reverse them, and what some of the relevant data are behind that. So we know that antithrombotic-associated ICH um, is expected to become more common uh, as a result of the fact that not only do we have warfarin, but lots of other direct oral acting anticoagulants. Plus, we have an aging patient population that has more indications for these medications. Um, and we know that patients that are on antithrombotics also have a higher risk of hematoma expansion as compared to those that don't, and a higher risk of uh, worse outcomes as it relates to their mortality. So as it relates, most of the epidemiologic data, as you might imagine, uh, is uh, 
specifically with warfarin, as opposed to the direct acting agents, which are newer on the market. But we do know that warfarin more than doubles a patient's risk for intraparenchymal hemorrhage, and it's associated with about 12 to 14% of all cases. The risk of it goes up with increasing INR, although most of these ICHs actually occur within the therapeutic range of two to three. Um, so we know that higher volume hematoma, increased rebleeding risk, hematoma expansion for a longer time occurs in patients with warfarin. And this is one study that actually looked at that, 70 consecutive patients uh, in a prospective cohort of ICH, and they found that ICH expansion was more frequent among warfarin users. And as you might expect, the risk in terms of the duration for ICH expansion in patients on warfarin, it goes out longer. So not only do they bleed more often, but the window for bleeding, if you will, is extended for a longer period of time. Recent data published in 2015, again, uh, retrospective cohort, but uh, the largest number of patients that I'm aware of that's actually looked at functional outcomes, this is across 19 centers in Germany, uh, looked at things like time to correction, and they also looked at blood pressure control, which I'm really not gonna spend a lot of time talking about today. But in terms of uh, time to correction, Patients with an INR less than 1.3 within four hours, if you look closely, 20% in terms of hematoma enlargement, as opposed to not achieving that goal, again, specifically to warfarin, 41%. So some pretty significant differences uh, as, it compare, as, it, as it relates to the time to, it takes to get your INR reversed. And so when we look at these new direct oral anticoagulants, the nice thing about these is they're safer from a bleeding perspective in general. The rates of ICH are indeed lower, but as you all well know, at least uh, until very recently, we don't have very effective methods of reversing these agents, aside from just giving a lot of procoagulant factors. So uh, to that end, I worked with a multidisciplinary group of folks uh, from across the country and uh, from Canada and Germany as well uh, to put together these guidelines that looked at reversal of all the classes of drugs. We tried to throw a broad scope but we narrowed our focus to specifically patients with ICH. Uh, so we scoured a ton of literature, as you can see here, uh, ended up with a total of 174 articles which served as our literature base. As you might guess, as I go through some of these, um, and as you might look at the guidelines, some of the quality of evidence is not ideal. A lot of it is indirect because there are not a lot of studies specifically in patients with ICH. So keep that in mind as you look at some of our recommendations that we tried to base them on the best evidence available but the best evidence available that's out there is not uh, terrific. We use the grade criteria, which I think most of you are familiar with, so you'll see ratings in terms of very low to high quality evidence, uh, and you'll see recommendation levels, which are either strong or weak recommendations, along with the associated evidence. And the nice thing about this criteria was it allowed our group to, if we felt really strongly about a recommendation, it just seemed obvious to us from a cl clinical perspective, we can make a strong recommendation, but qualify that to let you know that that's based on a very low quality of evidence. In cases where there's almost no evidence, then you can issue what's called a good practice statement, and so we put some of those in there as well. So let me start just by talking about uh, warfarin and the vitamin K antagonists. Just as a quick refresher, warfarin inhibits vitamin K oxide reductase, as you can see here, and vitamin K oxide, oxide reductase is a dependent uh, enzyme that basically reduces uh, vitamin K-dependent factor precursors and turns them into the active vitamin K factors. So in terms of inhibition, you get inhibitions of factor 2, 7, 9, and 10. Now, in terms of vitamin K itself, 
there's lots of small randomized control trials that show that it does in fact correct the INR, but it takes a little bit longer. It can take up to 24 hours to get your INR less than 1.4 with vitamin K alone. So it's not a reasonable monotherapy in the setting of acute bleeding or ICH. Um, vitamin K alone, you can get in up to 50% of cases, the data would suggest you can have I ICH expansion, and that makes sense based on what I just told you about the time to correction. However, vitamin K, in addition to PCC, prothrombin complex concentrates, or FFP, is necessary to provide a long-lasting INR. I don't know about you guys, but we still do get patients uh, at Hopkins admitted from outside hospitals where uh, they had a bleeding episode or came in with an elevated INR and got FFP, but they forgot to give vitamin K. I don't know if that happens here or not, but we still see those happening. So vitamin K is necessary, but it's not the only thing that you need to do. Importantly, the IV route is the preferred indication for acute bleeding indications, and I'll show you some data on why that is in just a moment. Low risk of anaphylaxis, uh, which can be mitigated by diluting it and infusing it over about 10 to 15 minutes. This is a nice study done by a colleague of mine out at uh, UCSD that looked at a retrospective cohort of roughly 400 patients. Uh, and they looked at doses of vitamin K, IV versus PO. Um, and they actually found in their study, uh, so if you look here, um, it's pretty clear that IV works faster. IV would be the solid line that you see here, uh, as opposed to PO. And that's consistent with what we know about the pharmacokinetics of these drugs. So IV is certainly preferred in the acute setting. But interestingly, they found that doses of 10 milligrams uh, did about the same job as doses of 2 to 5 milligrams overall in this cohort. And that was true whether they included all patients or they looked at just patients that got uh, vitamin K without uh, FFP clouding the picture. Uh, so they found a similar effect. So what does that mean to you guys? It's one thing to think about it. In the setting of ICH, for me, as we were writing the guidelines, we said 10 milligrams is the right dose. And the reason for that being it's probably rare that you're going to want to re-anticoagulate within a week after the setting of a major ICH. But with this data, albeit retrospective, it's something to think about. If you had a rare patient where you had to reverse the anticoagulant effect in the setting of ICH, but for some reason you really thought you might need to re-anticoagulate them shortly, consideration of a lower dose might be a reasonable option depending on the acuity of the situation because your time to bridge them back on the warfarin is definitely going to be longer if you give them a 10 milligram dose as opposed to two to five. So other options for reversal, as I think you're all aware, include replacement of the factors. And so I've got sort of a comparison of the ones here, but what we'll really spend most of our time talking about are the prothrombin complex concentrates. PCC3 refers to those products that are just two, nine, and 10. And now, uh, within the last year in the United States, we have PCC4, which includes 2, 7, 9, and 10, uh, the 7 being not activated factor 7. Uh, and that is uh, in contrast to FIBA, factor 8 inhibitor bypassing agent, also known as APCC, which includes 2, 7, 9, and 10. The difference here, factor 7 is activated factor 7. So a couple of quick pros and cons for these products here. So in terms of PCC, pros include the volume is lower. Uh, it can be given faster, and I'll show you some data on that. It reduces the INR quicker, partly because it's more concentrated and you can give it faster, and lower risk of infections as opposed to, as opposed to FFP. Uh, the cons are it's more costly from that perspective. It may not be widely available in every institution or in smaller hospitals, um, and they do have a higher risk of things like DIC upon redosing. Uh, so those are some of the cons. So the ideal reversal strategy in most patients in ICH is if you look at the just general time course of this uh, graph, which I made up just to give you a rough idea, 
but vitamin K is going to take you about you know, 10 to 12 hours to start kicking in, right? PCC is going to work immediately, but the half-life of factor seven in particular is fairly short, and as those other factors get metabolized, that's going to wear off over time. And so the ideal strategy here is to do both, right? So you give the PCC, you get a rapid correction of your INR, and as your PCC starts to wear off, your vitamin K starts to kick in, and you get a more sustained suppression of your INR over time. Now, some of the literature behind this, um, some being recently published, and this one a few years ago, uh, compared PCC and FFP. This was a multi-center, open-label, uh, non-inferiority study that looked at 200 patients on warfarin with major bleeding. Now, a small subset of them had ICH, and they were randomized to either a four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate or uh, FFP, uh, and the dosing varied based on the baseline INR, which is consistent with what you see now for a product like uh, uh, Kcentra or PCC4s on the market. And they were looking at uh, hemostatic efficiency at 24 hours and INR less than 1.3 within 30 minutes. And I'll bring to your attention a couple of points here. So one is, this is a big difference in terms of duration of infusion. So uh, on average, 17 minutes versus 148 minutes for the PCC and also lower volumes. And importantly, they didn't find any difference in effective hemostasis, but the numbers are fairly small um, in this trial, and their goal was non-inferiority, which they achieved. They did see differences, however, in patients with effective hemostasis where it was visible bleeding. And so this wouldn't include patients with ICH where, you know, you've got to wait for your repeat head CT scan to see whether or not there's hematoma enlargement. Uh, but in terms of the goal of an INR under 1.4, 30 minutes after the end of the infusion, 62% of the patients in the PCC group were able to achieve that rapid correction, where only 10% of the patients in the FFP group were. This is an observational prospective study because one of the important questions is, um, it's nice that we can reverse INR quickly, and that's based mostly all the data that's out there is gonna be looking at, but there's not a lot of data given the challenges of studying a patient population like this in terms of how this actually impacts long-term outcomes. This is a very small study uh, at a single center, but they did take a look at 64 patients that they looked at prospectively. A portion of them got PCC, a portion of them got FFP, and some of them got both, all with vitamin K. And when they looked at their results at this individual center, they did find that the patients in FFP did worse as it relates to their modified ranking scale of zero to three in terms of overall outcomes. So you can see 12% in the FFP group as opposed to about 40-some percent in patients that got PCC alone. So they had quicker time to INR correction, as you might think, and at least in this small cohort, they did see a difference in outcomes. Most recently this year, the INCH trial has been published, and so this was a multi-center prospective randomized open-label blinded endpoint study. Uh, this was done in patients over 18 with uh, spontaneous ICH on warfarin that had an INR greater than two. So they did exclude trauma, secondary causes of ICH like AVM and aneurysms, et cetera. Uh, and they looked at FFP, 20 mils per kilo versus 30 units per kilo of PCC4, and all patients got vitamin K. This was basically their study design. So on, on um, uh, assessment of symptoms, if they had an INR greater than two and a CT scan consistent for ICH, they got randomized and received uh, one of the two interventions within the hour. And then this is their primary endpoint was INR at three hours. That was the goal of their study. But if they didn't achieve effective INR, they were able to give some other products here to correct the INR in their patients and then did follow up uh, assessment of their secondary endpoints. And so what they found here was uh, a difference in their primary outcome measure, which was INR uh, less than or equal to 1.2 within three hours 
again, of about 10% with FFP, consistent with prior literature, and about 67% with PCC. So clearly a more rapid, uh, effective means of correcting your INR. Um, they also saw differences in terms of um, uh, their imaging data as it relates to hematoma expansion. So, and that was one of the reasons they stopped before they got to total enrollment. Their data and safety monitoring board looked at that and they saw a trend, albeit a secondary outpoint, out, um, secondary measurement that they were looking at for um, uh, more hematoma expansion and larger hematomas in the patients on FFP. So based on uh, a lot of that data, and I will admit we didn't have the inch trial published when we actually were assessing the guidelines, but I don't think it probably would have changed our recommendation months. We recommend vitamin K in everybody, 10 milligrams IV. Um, and then if the repeat INR is still elevated, you can redose uh, vitamin K at some point, uh, but that's rarely needed, especially if you're given PCC. And then our committee recommended three or four factor PCC over FFP, and again, that's based on a strong recommendation based on moderate quality evidence. Again, we don't have long-term convincing outcome data to say that, but we do have good surrogate outcome data in terms of rapid correction of the INR to make that recommendation. And then a lower quality level of recommendation is to use uh, four-factor over three-factor PCC because the larger studies were done with that product. Other evidence suggests that was done prior that three-factor works as well to rapidly correct your INR. Um, so, I'll skip over this and go to the next one, but basically you wanna do your repeat INR testing very quickly within about 15 minutes. With a product like PCC4, we carry the Kcentra product. They do have a black box warning in terms of redosing and the uh, high risk of DIC. And so our guidelines uh, consider a suggestion of if for some reason you need further correction, consider FFP after the uh, four-factor PCC. So let me get into the new stuff, okay? So direct oral acting anticoagulants. So uh, you're all familiar with these. So for example, rivaroxaban, apixaban, adoxaban bind to and directly inhibit factor 10A. Uh, dabigatran uh, binds to and directly inhibits factor 2A, or thrombin. So <clears throat> let me start off with laboratory measurements of these products uh, because it can be challenging and the chances are, and I'm pretty sure I, I was here a little while ago talking about this to the, the trauma group and I don't think you have these assays either. I know that we don't. Uh, but in terms of how you would measure something like dabigatran, the best linear correlation of drug concentration for dabigatran is either the chromogenic echoinclonic time or the dilute thrombin time, neither of which are usually rapidly available in the setting of a bleeding situation. Um, there are some more qualitative measures, which will give you an idea of whether or not the drug is present. So the thrombin time is probably the best measure for that. Um, it's exquisitely sensitive to the bigotran, so if there is the bigotran on board that's relevant, the thrombin time will be elevated. The degree of elevation does not, however, correlate with the degree of exposure. So it's more of a yes-no assessment, if you will, as it relates to the thrombin time. For rivaroxaban, apixaban, and adoxaban, there are chromogenic anti-10A assays for these, um, and there are calibrators for them, uh, specific to the drug product itself. Um, you would expect that if you were to send off your low molecular weight heparin anti-10A, those would probably be elevated as well uh, in that setting, but they haven't been looked at to my knowledge to see how well they actually correlate with drug concentrations over time. And as it relates to your standard assays, PT, PTT, INR, they can be elevated or they can be normal with um, therapeutic drug concentrations. So if they're elevated, be suspicious, but if they're normal, it doesn't mean you're out of the woods, if you will. So in terms of dabigatran, um, 
some of the earlier studies looking at reversing this agent before we had the new reversal agent on board looked at the clotting factors and there was a lot of ex vivo studies, some in vitro studies, uh, uh, and animal studies that suggest that you get some uh, degree of reversal with uh, concentrated factors. Um, it's important for these drugs, however, if you're able to do it, uh, to get a good medication history. Because uh, the half-life of these, all of them, is roughly about 12 hours, uh, a little bit shorter for a Pixaban, but uh, they're all about 12 hours. So if you're 24 to 48 hours out uh, and you have normal renal function, the chances are the therapeutic effect of the drug is minimal. Um, if you're within that time frame, though, that, that is more of a concern. So if you can get that kind of information, that could be very helpful. The newest agent, uh, Adarucizumab, is a monoclonal antibody fragment that was designed to bind to and directly inhibit dabigatran specifically. So it's important to know that this drug won't work for other direct thrombin inhibitors. Uh, the most recent published data, called the Reverse Ad Study, published in New England Journal of Medicine uh, just a bit ago, was a prospective cohort that looked at five grams of idarucizumab in patients with uh, two groups. One was a serious bleeding group where they had about 51 patients, and 18 of those had intracerebral hemorrhage. Uh, and they had another group where patients were admitted onto Bigatran but just needed reversal for an urgent procedure or surgery. Uh, and the primary endpoint for this study, again, is laboratory assessments. Small numbers, hard patient population to study, probably not going to be able to do a large trial that looks at meaningful outcomes. So surrogate measures which were appropriate for this drug, dilute thrombin time, as I said, which is linear correlates with the drug effect, and the ECT. And this drug did what it was designed to do um, in terms of their test results of the anticoagulant activity. Within minutes, it would neutralize the effects of the dabigatran as it relates to the dilute thrombin time assay and the eccrine clotting time assay. They did look at time to hemostasis. And this is something that I think is, when people read this, get concerned about, and I do too. Um, but it's, you need to interpret this in the context of the study design, I think. So the median time to hemostasis in the urgent bleeding group was 11.4 hours. Um, and 13 of these patients had ICH. So 11 hours to median hemostasis doesn't sound great to me clinically. Um, but I think this is in part due to the study design and that a lot of the bleeding was non-visible bleeding. And so the time to hemostasis was basically the time of when they got their repeat imaging, uh, which may not have to be directly to do with when actually the drug was reversed and the bleeding stopped. As it relates to group B, where you actually have visible hemostasis in the OR, uh, surgeons reported normal intra-op hemostasis in group B for about 92% of the patients that got the drug. So, um, so that's uh, important to factor into when you're looking through that trial and those results. Uh, they didn't have any safety concerns, but again, a small patient population. Um, <clears throat> now, renal replacement therapy uh, will work for dabigatran. It will remove the drug. It's got a low molecular weight, low molecular weight. it's not protein bound, and has a fairly low volume of distribution. All three of those things tell you, yes, dialysis will remove this drug. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, before idarucizumab came available, there were some case reports looking at that. And this is a case report that actually looked at aggressive hemodialysis. They didn't do CRRT in this patient. But you can see the drug concentrations did drop over a period of about uh, a couple of hours. So it took a little bit of a while for this to work. And then, as you might expect, you did see rebound drug concentration as the, as the dialysis was turned off. And that's not surprising either, given a volume distribution of 50 to 70 liters, you'll get some redistribution from the peripheral compartment after the dialysis is over. So in this case report, they suggest, and I would agree that CRT might be more appropriate if you're gonna choose a mode of RRT 
to remove the bigotry for a more prolonged period of time. Now, in the idarucizumab study, they did include patients with renal insufficiency, and that drug works regardless of the setting of uh, renal insufficiency. So I think it's questionable whether or not RRT plays an important role now for the bigotry reversal now that we have this drug, which we know will neutralize at least the laboratory measures within minutes, as opposed to the time it takes to set up dialysis and get that started and for a gradual decline in your drug concentration over time. So in terms of our overall recommendations, um, as we were writing these and submitting these, this is right when the, the, the reversal agent got uh, approved. So we were, we initially had suggested uh, APCC as a reversal agent for dabigatran, uh, but uh, knowing this drug was coming out, we held off until the uh, approval was granted and we revised our recommendations accordingly based on that most recent trial. So, uh, so our recommendations can uh, suggest uh, one, if you're able to know uh, when the last administration was, uh, and it's within the last couple of half-lives, it's reasonable to give, but if you're outside of that time frame and you don't have renal insufficiency, there's probably no need. Um, if it's very early and you know there's a big ingestion, activated charcoal would be appropriate, and that's the same across for all of these uh, anticoagulants. Uh, and to give uh, idarucizumab if you're within that time frame uh, in the setting of ICH. Now, in terms of the factor 10A agents, um, we don't yet have a reversal agent for that, and we'll, we'll talk about those. Uh, activated charcoal should also bind these. Again, I've yet to have a patient that came in within a couple hours that we could actually do that. Um, but it will reduce a pixaban exposure, and there's been some studies looking at that. For the other factor 10A inhibitors, they are partially renally eliminated. Um, and so based on that and their other pharmacodynamic properties, it's not expected that RRT would be able to rapidly decrease plasma levels of these drugs. So in terms of the data that's out there, I'll quickly summarize that it's not a lot. Uh, they've looked at uh, largely via sort of ex vivo studies and animal studies, four-factor PCC, activated prothrombin complex concentrates, and factor seven all partially correct these laboratory parameters of uh, anticoagulation as it relates to the factor 10A agents. Um, and uh, it, decreases, it decreased bleeding in one small study, uh, uh, animal models of acute hemorrhage after punch biopsy, um, and, as, and in punch biopsy in healthy volunteers as well. So the interesting thing here is that I think within a couple weeks, it's likely that the FDA uh, will be making an announcement on the approval of this first agent, Indexinet Alpha. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about uh, that drug uh, because I think the FDA's deadline is actually August 17th for um, coming to some decisions on that. So I'm expecting we might hear something soon one way or another. Um, so this is a recombinant modified form of factor 10A. Um, and it is a little bit more of a global reversal as compared to idarucizumab, where that works specifically for dabigatran. This drug uh, will bind to all those agents that are working on factor 10A. And that would include low molecular weight heparin and a drug like fondaparinox. Uh, and so uh, there, I have some percent reversals in terms of some of the earlier studies that were done with this. There's another molecule, molecule that is earlier in development that um, via its um, negative charge tends to bind to a lot of these anticoagulants. Uh, and, uh, you know, if this were to work out, it might be even a more universal reversal agent, but this is uh, the, the results for this study for, for this drug are a little early to be able to tell if any of that would actually come to market. So let me tell you a little bit about Indexinet, uh, as this is a recombinant engineered version of factor 10A. So you can see the drug itself over here looks very much like the structure of factor 10A. 
um, which you can see over here on the left, factor 10A bonding to factor 5A on the membrane. Um, it is absent of this GLA binding domain, so it's catalytically inactive and has one other modification uh, up here, a serine alanine mutation as well. Um, and so it's highly effective and has a very high affinity uh, for drugs uh, that bind to factor 10A, more so than the, uh, de novo factor 10A. Uh, and it doesn't participate in the clotting cascade. So you think it is just bind and sequester, if you will. Um, because it is a modified factor form of 10A, it also will bind to drugs that are bound to antithrombin-3, like enoxaparin, for example. And so uh, the data published so far suggests that this drug is effective in reversing apixaban and rivaroxaban. And so this was uh, uh, the most recent study published in uh, New England Journal of Medicine where they looked at uh, uh, varied doses based on the agent received, because it really is a molar ratio, a molecule of indexinet reverses a molecule of apixaban and rivaroxaban. The dose for rivaroxaban is about double that of apixaban, and so sure enough, the dose for indexinet is going to be about double if you need to reverse rivaroxaban as opposed to apixaban. Uh, and you can see here in this study, basically looking at anti-factor 10A activity for apixaban, this would be an indexinet bolus. You see a complete reversal almost immediately of the anti-factor 10A activity, and then a trend uh, back up over time, uh, which tells you that you're going to need a continuous infusion of these drugs. And sure enough, that's uh, how it's being studied and likely how, uh, if brought to approval, is going to be the uh, prescribing information. Uh, so you see here in terms of the continuous infusion, again, you have, if you have a bolus plus continuous infusion, you get reversal of your factor 10A activity over time for both apixaban and rivaroxaban. Uh, and so it's not just the anti-10A activity, other markers of thrombin generation, et cetera, were also shown to be reversed in a similar fashion. So as of today, uh, the recommendation really would be, um, you know, obviously stop the drugs uh, if you have that, if they're still on board. Um, obtain information about when the last dose was so you can make an educated decision about whether or not you need to reverse the agent Activated charcoal works if it's early enough. And right now, either four-factor PCC or activated PCC are very reasonable options based on very limited data uh, for reversal of these agents. Hopefully in a couple months, maybe we have another option that would be more effective. So I'm going to go pretty quick through uh, some of the things I know that you're all very familiar with unfractionated heparin protamine, low molecular weight heparins um, in the interest of time. So, so first off, um, protamine, which I know you're all familiar with, uh, highly cationic compound binds to the highly negatively charged uh, sulfate moieties on heparin products, and that's how it works. So uh, protamine, there's been lots of animal trials and healthy human trials done a long time ago uh, that shows that it works, and one milligram of protamine reverses about 100 units per, of heparin in terms of that ratio. And so you want to reverse the drug on board. In other words, whatever was given in the last two to three hours based on the half-life of heparin is what you want to reverse. So I won't spend any more time talking about uh, protamine and those recommendations for unfractionated heparin. For low microweight heparin, we know that protamine is partially effective. So it neutralizes uh, the anti-2A activity better than the anti-10A activity of anoxaparin. Um, some case series and reports that are out there suggest that bleeding has slowed down in some of the patients that have been given protamine, despite seeing your anti-10A level come down. Um, so partially effective. And this is one study 
uh, done by Dr. Crowther and colleagues that looked at protamine uh, for reversal, laboratory-based study. They looked at percent anti-10A activity reversed as it relates to a function of the sulfation of the different low molecular weight heparin compounds. And it makes sense, right? So we just said protamine's cationic. It works by bonding to the negatively charged moieties. And sure enough, if you look at the different low molecular weight heparins and the degree of sulfation, you get a much higher percent reversal for supersulfated low molecular weight heparins and a lower reversal for anoxaparin, which is not a sulfated. In terms of other things that have been looked at, uh, factor 7A, um, if there's contraindications to protamine, that's about the only other option that's been looked at. Um, hemodialysis, low molecular weight heparins will accumulate in renal insufficiency. Um, there's not really any data or experience with trying to reverse low molecular heparin, to my knowledge, using aggressive uh, dialysis uh, settings. Uh, so it's going to depend a little bit on the low molecular weight heparin itself, um, but probably not an ideal option because we really don't know how well that would uh, work. Now, indexinet alpha, interestingly, is also under investigation, as I said, for partial reversal um, of low molecular weight heparins and pentasaccharides. So this is one study, uh, phase two early study, that's uh, looked at this in 27 healthy volunteers. They gave them 40 milligrams of anoxaparin once a day for six days straight. They looked at their anti-factor 10A levels. They gave them the drug, and they saw, sure enough, their anti-factor 10A level came down very reliably, and thrombin generation in these healthy patients was restored quickly to baseline levels. So um, we do know that there's an ongoing uh, study right now for indexinet that is enrolling bleeding patients, because uh, there's not uh, really a lot of data out there on bleeding patients for indexinet that are on either uh, apixaban, rivaroxaban, edoxaban, or enoxaparin, or all being enrolled in that study. So we look forward to the results of that to look at the utility of this agent in bleeding patients. Uh, but it may be available to us before the results of that study are, are done, based on the studies in the other healthy volunteers. So uh, at present, we do suggest uh, protamine for low molecular weight heparin. Uh, we provide some dosing recommendations in the guidelines, which I'd refer you back to for that. Uh, activated factor seven, if for some reason protamine is contraindicated in your patient. Um, and we do go out of the way just to say, you know, reversal is probably not indicated in patients for both heparin and low molecular weight heparin that are receiving prophylactic doses. So very briefly, the pentasaccharides. So uh, fondaparinox, um, we don't use that a whole lot. I don't see a lot of patients on that, uh, but it's worth mentioning. Uh, protamine is ineffective. So you can't just kind of group that drug into the class of low molecular weight heparins when you're talking about reversal. Protamine won't work. Um, there's basically only one in vitro study that looked at uh, a handful of agents, uh, clotting factors, and the only thing they found that seemed to work was a fairly low dose of FIBA, activated PCC, so 20 units per kilo. So that's where our recommendations are derived, a very small in vitro study that looked at this and knowing that uh, protamine has been looked at and it doesn't work. Uh, so again, if andexanet does come out, that might be a viable option for this. So let me shift now to thrombolytics, and then I'll hit in a platelets, and then we'll wrap up from there and, and go with questions. So, so briefly, in terms of thrombolytics, the way that thrombolytics work, of course, you have thrombolytic that binds to plasminogen. In the case of alteplase, which is the one that we use, um, it's preferential to fibrin-bound plasminogen. Uh, as opposed to uh, previous agents that we used to use, which maybe were not as specific, and they would bind equally to uh, fibrin-bound plasminogen and free-floating plasminogen in the serum. Uh, but essentially, cleave plasminogen in a plasmin, and that dissolves your fibrin clot. 
So in terms of the pharmacokinetics of alteplase, this is an interesting one, and I always ask my pharmacy students questions like this. So why is it, you know, go look up what the half-life of alteplase is, and then go tell me why is it that uh, we say in stroke patients, you know, you can't put a Foley in for 24 hours because of the risk of bleeding. And they look it up and, you know, it befuddles them because the half-life, uh, the serum half-life is five minutes, the terminal elimination half-life is 26 minutes, it should all be gone in a couple hours, and if you measure serum concentrations, it is. But the pharmacodynamic fact is that it does cause a reduction in fibrinogen, which probably contributes to increased risk of bleeding over a period of time, and it does have some antiplatelet effects, which are not fully quantified, uh, but uh, it does. And so you are at risk for bleeding events for up to 24 hours after uh, administration. So we know that ICH occurs in patients getting alteplase in two to seven percent of stroke patients, uh, and if that occurs, hematoma expansion uh, uh, is uh, uh, problematic and frequent, uh, 40 percent, and it carries a high mortality with it. So uh, a number of epidemiologic studies have looked at things based on the mechanism of action of alteplase, looking at fibrinogen as whether or not that's a marker of bleeding risk or, or that's a risk factor for bleeding, if you will. Um, and most of the retrospective epidemiologic studies that have looked at this suggest that that's the case. So this is one study that I present to you here that looked at 72 stroke patients uh, with TPA, and they took baseline measurements of fibrinogen and fibrin degradation products, and they measured them at two hours and 24 hours. Um, six of these patients had early parenchymal hematomas, um, and 15% had early hemorrhagic infarcts. And so based on their analysis of the data, they did find that early uh, fibr fibrinogen degradation coagulopathy, a low fibrinogen and a high FDP at two hours, increased your odds. And a reduction of fibrinogen less than 200 uh, at two hours multiplied the odds of early parenchymal hemorrhage by 12. Uh, there's other epidemiologic studies similar to that which suggest the same thing. And so based on that, if you had to pick something for reversal, replacement of fibrinogen would be the most likely thing to do. And so that's where our recommendations are derived from, suggesting cryoprecipitation precipitate and targeting a fibrinogen level over 100. Um, antifibrinolytics, interestingly, from a mechanism of action standpoint, you would think uh, would work, but they really haven't been evaluated. There's like one or maybe two case reports out there looking at uh, tranexamic acid, uh, but from a mechanism of action standpoint, they should reverse the effects of alteplase if it's there, and, but keep in mind, it's gone real quick in terms of the actual molecule itself in terms of the half-life. So that's where our guidelines for alteplase are derived from, uh, cryoprecipitate in patients who have uh, thrombolytic uh, agent-related symptomatic ICH, um, who've got a thrombolytic agent in the past uh, 24 hours. Uh, we do suggest checking fibrinogen levels uh, and going based off of that. Now lastly, I'll take you to uh, antiplatelets. And so lots of different antiplatelets out there on the market, different mechanism of actions. Some are reversible, some are irreversible. And if I had to summarize the data out there looking at antiplatelets in patients with ICH, I'd say it's highly controversial whether or not being on an antiplatelet when you have ICH contributes to ICH expansion or poor neurologic outcomes. Less controversial with warfarin. I showed you that data earlier. Um, but with antiplatelets, you can find uh, epidemiologic research that suggests uh, either way. They're either harmful or they don't really impact the outcome of the patients that have ICH. So um, having said that, um, if you had to pick an, a reversal for an endoplatelet agent, you'd give platelets, right? And so let me present to you some of the data that's looked at that. And so there's lots of uncontrolled small studies uh, that have looked at patients. One I have presented to you here, which was 45 patients with ICH, 
They actually measured platelet, um, uh, platelet activity in this study, and they gave platelet transfusions. And they found that uh, transfusion within 12 hours of symptoms uh, onset of, of giving platelets was associated with a smaller follow-up ICH uh, head CT. Again, 45 patients, a very high rate of adverse events related to platelet transfusions uh, in these patients. That being said, there's lots of studies that have been done in a similar fashion to this that have failed to show the same results. The two large studies that I'll show to you, this first one is a study that was done in China uh, in patients with basal ganglia hemorrhage. And all these patients had craniotomy and surgical evacuation of the hematoma, which, um, you know, if there's not mass effect or other things, it's probably not something we would routinely do all the time here. So keep that in mind, slightly different patient population. All these patients had neurosurgery. And there's a largest, was the largest cohort time when we were writing the guidelines. So we felt in, in compelled to analyze this and consider it in terms of our recommendation. They grouped these patients into a couple of different categories. One was patients that weren't getting any aspirin when they had their hemorrhage. And the other group was patients that had aspirin. And they separated them to whether or not they were aspirin sensitive or not. And so they did platelet testing. And patients that were aspirin resistant, they put in one category. Patients that were aspirin sensitive, they either gave two apheresis dose of platelets, one, or a control group of no platelets. And so um, I'll talk about the limitations in a moment. But what they found in the end was that post-operative hemorrhage, post-operative ICH volume, and mortality was all higher in the patients that were on aspirin, that were sensitive to it, as compared to the patients that were aspirin naive. And there was less ICH recurrence, about half as much, and smaller post-op ICH volumes in patients on aspirin who got platelet transfusion, okay? And they also saw a difference in mortality between those cohorted groups. There are a lot of limitations. It's the largest number that was done at the time, so I mentioned it from that perspective. But again, surgery might not be standard of care for all patients here, so you've got to take that uh, into consideration. So it doesn't really tell us a lot about non-surgical hemostasis in these patients, number one. Number two, from a statistical perspective, there were a lot of comparisons in the study where they separated out five groups and did lots of different measurements. And so just from a methodological perspective, some questions there as well. So fast forward now to the most recent publication, the PATCH study. This was a multi-center open-label uh, masked endpoint study that looked at patients across 60 hospitals over in Europe. Um, they had 190 patients that within six hours of supratentorial ICH uh, symptom onset on antiplatelet therapy for at least seven days beforehand and GCS greater than eight. So this is their patient population. They had another 190 patients that met this description. And they found, interestingly, in this case, that the odds of death or dependence at three months was higher in the patients that got platelet transfusion. So not only was it not helpful in these patients, it was harmful based on this data. And so you had a higher proportion of patients with a modified Rankin scale in the three to six domain, if you will, um, uh, if, you, if you were, I'm sorry, in the zero to three domain in terms of worse outcomes if you were in the uh, standard, uh, platelet transfusion group. They looked at this in terms of subtypes as well, so they broke down some of their subgroup analysis. They looked at dual antiplatelet therapy, single antiplatelet therapy, breaking it down based on total hematoma volume, and uh, no matter which way they sort of sliced or diced the data, um, the, the end result was that uh, it favored standard of care in terms of the end result. And so that's the first sort of randomized prospective study that's been done. It's looked at using platelets in patients with antiplatelet-related ICH. Um, and so uh, based on that, our, we didn't have that information when we wrote the guidelines, but we did 
urge against routine use of platelets, and I think that probably confirms at least some of it right now. There's another large trial going on. Again, 190 patients, that's not big for a stroke trial, right? Uh, but that just happens to be the, you know, you don't see as much ICH as you do ischemic stroke. So uh, I don't think the, the nail's in the coffin here by any stretch as it relates to whether or not platelets are indicated, but at least the current evidence suggests uh, that it doesn't work and it might be harmful in patients on antiplatelets with ICH. Other drugs that have been looked at include desmopressin. Spoke, I suspect you're all familiar with that for use in the setting of like uremic bleeding and the enhanced platelet function. Um, uh, a couple of very small case series, that's about it. Uh, it's not a very uh, toxic thing to give, and so reasonable thing to consider, but there's not a lot of evidence suggesting one way or another whether it helps. The evidence so far has looked at patients uh, that had platelet inhibition on admission as a result of an antiplatelet and they saw improved platelet function on their platelet aggregation assays in response to desmopressin. So some proof of concept that the drug might work, uh, but no data in terms of uh, meaningful outcomes. And so our guideline recommendations are consistent that we suggest against routine platelet transfusion. We do put a qualifier in there in that if you have a patient with ICH that's going for neurosurgery based on that one large trial of all the patients that had neurosurgery that clearly had a better outcome if they got platelets, that would be a reasonable thing to do. Uh, so I'm going to stop there. This is a sort of a summary slide, if you will, of what our major recommendations of the guidelines were in a very abbreviated form. Um, but I know I presented a lot of information. My goal was to give you a flavor of the different drug classes we looked at, some of the rationale for the recommendations that we have in there, um, and then present that to you and see uh, what other questions you have. So uh, I'd like to reiterate again my thanks to Mike and, and all of you. It's, like I said, a tremendous honor to be back here. I, Having worked here for two years, I know uh, how fantastic a place this is and the, the great people that work here. So it's, uh, it's humbling for me to be here to present to you all. So thank you. So for protamine, correct me if I'm wrong, is it patients that had a vasectomy that you have to avoid it in? I, I wouldn't know that if I was going to give it in a bleeding patient with ICH. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so that's the only thing, other thing I can think of. You know, if they, I mean, we know people do have reactions of protamine from time to time, but uh, you know, in the in these settings, it's going to be hard to tell. Good question. Is that right, Jeff? I don't know. I'll put you on the spot. Is that right? All right. I didn't just make that up. That's not something I could just make up. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Sure. Uh, yeah, so just to repeat the question. So are there any studies looking at uh, targeted measures of coagulopathy guiding your reversal strategy, whether it's TAG or PTY12, et cetera, and uh, those types of measures? And so um, all the studies that have looked at reversal have done some measurements of coagulopathy, but I can't say that they've actually designed any of their studies to um, that the intervention was based off of that. Uh, the exception would be some of the small studies looking at antiplatelets have done just that, where they've looked at platelet aggregation assays. I think it was the Verify Now assay that the group that uh, Natick and colleagues used, where they assessed platelet uh, activity on admission, and if the patients had inhibition of platelets, they gave platelets, and they saw reversal of inhibition with platelets. Small number of patients uh, in that setting, but 
nothing large to really say this is the way that you should monitor that. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, it probably depends a lot on, like with Warfront, it's a little bit easier. You can get a very quick INR. Uh, but for all these other measures, like to actually, the chances of you getting that laboratory value back, unless you're at maybe one or two centers that does most of the referrals for these lab assays in a timely fashion for it to be informative for your treatment decision, I don't know. Now, TAG is a more rapid turnaround study you can do at the point of care, and I'm not aware of any studies off the top of my head that have looked at that to guide decision making. Yes, sir. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with the Andexanet in terms of the way that that's provided. The, um, the, the Adarucizumab comes in a box with two vials, 2.5 grams each, total dose of 5 grams. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, and I don't think it's lyophilized, actually. I think it's, it's already a liquid, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not 100% sure about that. I have to go look. But um, I'm, yeah, I'm actually pretty sure, because it doesn't even come with the reconstitution liquid in it. So it's, it's already, and you can either spike the vial and hang it very quick over a series of minutes. And if you look in the package insert, it says you could just pull it up and give one vial sort of slow IV push via syringe and then do the second one. So at least for that drug, Pretty straightforward, uh, rapid turnaround time, you know, if you get, um, you know, that drug to the bedside quickly. Which you raise a good point, though, too. Like, these drugs are expensive, and um, at least, in, in my opinion, it, they lend themselves to having a very good sort of expedited pathway so that, you know, you don't want to use expensive drugs on patients that don't need them, but you want to have very clear criteria that you can work together as a multi-professional group to establish who should get it and who shouldn't if they meet this criteria get the drug immediately to the bedside. Because to your point, as you said, in ICH and other types of bleeding, time really does matter. Um, and you don't want to put in arbitrary delays for patients that really should get them. I think the idericizumab costs about 30, it costs us about $3,500 a dose for the drug. Um, and the indexinet would be at least that, if not quite a bit more. Thanks, everybody.